Chapter Seventeen through Nineteen, Book One of Les Misérables, Volume Five by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alison Veldes. Les Misérables, Volume Five by Victor Hugo. Translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. Book One, The War Between Four Walls, Chapter Seventeen, Mortus Pater Filium, Moriturum Expectat. Marius dashed out of the barricade. Combeferre followed him, but he was too late. Gavroche was dead. Combeferre brought back the basket of cartridges. Marius bore the child. Alas, he thought. That which the father had done for his father, he was requiting to the son. Only Thenardier had brought back his father alive; he was bringing back the child dead. When Marius re-entered the redoubt with Gavroche in his arms, his face, like the child, was inundated with blood. At the moment when he had stooped to lift Gavroche, a bullet had grazed his head; he had not noticed it. Coiffeirac untied his cravat. And with it bandaged Marius's brow. They laid Gavroche on the same table with Mabeuf, and spread over the two corpses the black shawl. There was enough of it for both the old man and the child. Combeferre distributed the cartridges from the basket which he had brought in. This gave each man fifteen rounds to fire. Jean Valjean was still in the same place, motionless on his stone post. When Combeferre offered him his fifteen cartridges, he shook his head. "He's a rare eccentric," said Combeferre in a low voice to Enjolras. "He finds a way of not fighting in this barricade, which does not prevent him from defending it," responded Enjolras. "Heroism has its originals," resumed Combeferre, and Coiffeirac, who had overheard, added, "He is another sort from Father Mabeuf." One thing which must be noted is that the fire which was battering the barricade hardly disturbed the interior. Those who have never traversed the whirlwind of this sort of war can form no idea of the singular moments of tranquillity mingled with these convulsions. Men go and come; they talk; they jest; they lounge. Some one who we know heard a combatant say to him in the midst of the grape shot, "We are here as at a bachelor breakfast." The redoubt of the Rue de la Chanvrerie, we repeat, seemed very calm within. All mutations and all phases had been or were about to be exhausted. The position from critical had become menacing, and from menacing was probably about to become desperate. In proportion as the situation grew gloomy, the glow of heroism empurpled the barricade more and more. Enjolras, who was grave, dominated it in the attitude of a young Spartan. Sacrificing his naked sword to the sombre genius Epidotas. Combeferre, wearing an apron, was dressing the wounds. Bossuet and Foyi were making cartridges with the powder flask picked up by Gavroche on the dead corporal, and Bossuet said to Foyi, "We are soon to take the diligence for another planet." Coiffeirac was disposing and arranging on some paving stones which he had reserved for himself near Enjolras. A complete arsenal: his sword cane, his gun, 
two holster pistols and a cudgel, with the care of a young girl setting a small dunker-quay in order. Jean Valjean stared silently at the wall opposite him. An artisan was fastening Mother Hucheloe's big straw hat on his head with a string, for fear of sunstroke, as he said. The young men from the Corgurde d'Aille were chatting merrily among themselves, as though eager to speak patois for the last time. Joly, who had taken Widow Hucheloe's mirror from the wall, was examining his tongue in it. Some combatants, having discovered a few crusts of rather mouldy bread in a drawer, were eagerly devouring them. Marius was disturbed with regard to what his father was about to say to him. Chapter 18 The Vulture Become Prey We must insist upon one psychological fact peculiar to barricades. Nothing which is characteristic of that surprising war of the streets should be omitted. Whatever may have been the singular inward tranquillity which we have just mentioned, the barricade, for those who are inside it, remains, none the less, a vision. There is something of the apocalypse in civil war. All the mists of the unknown are commingled with fierce flashes, revolutions are sphinxes, and any one who has passed through a barricade thinks he has traversed a dream. The feelings to which one is subject in these places we have pointed out in the case of Marius, and we shall see the consequences. They are both more or less than life. On emerging from a barricade, one no longer knows what one has seen there. One has been terrible, but one knows it not. One has been surrounded with conflicting ideas which had human faces. One's head has been in the light of the future. There were corpses lying prone there, and phantoms standing erect. The hours were colossal and seemed hours of eternity. One has lived in death. Shadows have passed by. What were they? One has beheld hands on which there was blood. There was a deafening horror. There was also a frightful silence. There were open mouths which shouted, and other open mouths which held their peace. One was in the midst of smoke, of night perhaps. One fancied that one had touched the sinister ooze of unknown depths. One stares at something red on one's fingernails. One no longer remembers anything. Let us return to the Rue de la Chanvrerie. All at once, between two discharges, the distant sound of a clock striking the hour became audible. "'It is midday,' said Comfer. The twelve strokes had not finished striking when Enjolras sprang to his feet, and from the summit of the barricade hurled this thundering shout, "'Carry stones up into the houses! Line the window-sills and the roofs with them! Half the men to their guns, the other half to the paving-stones! There is not a minute to be lost!' A squad of sappers and miners, axe on shoulder, had just made their appearance in battle array at the end of the street. This could only be the head of a column. And of what column? The attacking column, evidently. The sappers charged with the demolition of the barricade must always precede the soldiers who are to scale it. They were, evidently, on the brink of that moment which Monsieur Clermont Tonnerre, in 1822, called the Tug of War. Enjolras's order was executed with the correct haste which is peculiar to ships and barricades, the only two scenes of combat where escape is impossible. In less than a minute two-third of the stones which Enjolras had piled up at the door of the Corinth had been gathered up to the first floor in the attic, and before a second minute had elapsed, these stones artistically set one upon the other 
walled up the sash window on the first floor and the windows in the roof to half their height. A few loopholes, carefully planned by Foyer, the principal architect, allowed of the passage of the gun-barrels. The armament of the windows could be erected all the more easily since the firing of grape-shot had ceased. The two cannons were now discharging ball against a centre of a barrier in order to make a hole there, and, if possible, a breach for the assault. When the stones destined the final defence were in place, and Jolras had the bottles which he had set under the table where Mabouf lay, carried to the first floor. "'Who is to drink that?' Boswe asked him. "'They,' replied Enjolras. Then they barricaded the window below and held in readiness the iron crossbars which served to secure the door of the wine-shop at night. The fortress was complete. The barricade was the rampart. The wine-shop was the dungeon. With the stones which remained they stopped up the outlet. As the defenders of a barricade are always obliged to be sparing of their ammunition, and as the assailants know this, the assailants combine their arrangements with a sort of irritating leisure, expose themselves to fire prematurely, though in appearance more than in reality, and take their ease. The preparations for attack are always made with certain methodical deliberation, after which the lightning strikes. This deliberation permitted Enjolras to take a review of everything and to perfect everything. He felt that, since such men were to die, their death ought to be a masterpiece. He said to Marius, We are the two leaders. I will give the last orders inside. Do you remain outside and observe? Marius posted himself on the lookout upon the crest of the barricade. Enjolras had the door of the kitchen, which was the ambulance, as the reader will remember, nailed up. No splashing of the wounded, he said. He issued his final orders in the tap-room in a curt but profoundly tranquil tone. For ye listened and replied in the name of all. On the first floor hold your axes in readiness to cut the staircase. Have you them? Yes, said For ye. How many? Two axes and a pole-axe. That is good. There are now twenty-six combatants of us on foot. How many guns are there? Thirty-four. Eight too many. Keep those eight guns loaded like the rest and at hand. Swords and pistols in your belts. Twenty men to the barricade. Six ambushed in the attic windows and the window on the first floor to fire on the assailants through the loopholes in the stones. Let not a single worker remain inactive here. Presently, when the drum beats the assault, let the twenty below stairs rush to the barricade. The first to arrive will have the best places. These arrangements made, he turned to Javert and said, I'm not forgetting you. And laying a pistol on the table, he added, The last man to leave this room will smash the skull of this spy. Here? inquired a voice. No, let us not mix their corpses with our own. The little barricade of the Monte Duo Lane can be scaled. It is only four feet high. The man is well pinioned. He shall be taken thither and put to death. There was someone who was more impassive at that moment than Enjolras. It was Chavert. Here Jean Valjean made his appearance. He had been lost among the group of insurgents. He stepped forth and said to Enjolras, "'You are the commander?' "'Yes.' "'You thanked me a while ago.' "'In the name of a republic. The barricade has two saviours, Marius Pontmercy and yourself. "'Do you think that I deserve a recompense?' 
Certainly. Well, I request one. What is it? That I may blow that man's brains out. Javert raised his head, saw Jean Valjean, made an almost imperceptible movement, and said, That is just. As for Enjolras, he had begun to reload his rifle. He cut his eyes about him. No objections. And he turned to Jean Valjean. Take the spy. Jean Valjean did, in fact, take possession of Javert by seating himself on the end of the table. He seized the pistol, and a faint click announced that he had cocked it. Almost at the same moment, a blast of trumpets became audible. Take care! shouted Marius from the top of the barricade. Javert began to laugh with that noiseless laugh which was peculiar to him, and gazing intently at the insurgents, he said to them, You are in no better case than I am. All out! shouted Enjolras. The insurgents poured out tumultuously, and as they went received in the back, may we be permitted the expression, this sally of Javert's. We shall meet again shortly. Chapter 19 Jean Valjean Takes His Revenge When Jean Valjean was left alone with Javert, he untied the rope which fastened the prisoner across the middle of the body, and the knot of which was under the table. After this he made him a sign to rise. Javert obeyed with that indefinable smile in which the supremacy of enchained authority is condensed. Jean Valjean took Javert by the martingale, as one would take a beast of burden by the breastband, and dragging the latter after him, emerged from the wine-shop slowly, because Javert, with his impeded limbs, could take only very short steps. Jean Valjean had the pistol in his hand. In this manner they crossed the inner trapezium of the barricade. The insurgents, all intent on the attack which was imminent, had their backs turned to these two. Marius alone, stationed on one side at the extreme left of the barricade, saw them pass. This group of victim and executioner was illuminated by the sepulchral light which he bore in his own soul. Jean Valjean, with some difficulty, but without relaxing his hold for a single instant, made Javert, pinioned as he was, scale the little entrenchment in the Montedor lane. When they had crossed this barrier, they found themselves alone in the lane. No one saw them. Among the heap, they could distinguish a livid face, streaming hair, a pierced hand in the half-nude breast of a woman. It was Eponine. The corner of the houses hid them from the insurgents. The corpses carried away from the barricade formed a terrible pile a few paces distant. Javert gazed askance at this body, and profoundly calm said in a low tone, It strikes me that I know that girl. Then he turned to Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean thrust the pistol under his arm and fixed on Javert a look which it required no words to interpret. Javert, it is I. Javert replied, Take your revenge. Jean Valjean drew from his pocket a knife and opened it. A clasped knife, exclaimed Javert. You are right, that suits you better. Jean Valjean cut the martingale which Javert had about his neck, then he cut the cords on his wrists. Then, stooping down, he cut the cord on his feet, and straightening himself up, he said to him, You are free. Javert was not easily astonished. Still master of himself though he was, he could not repress a start. He remained open-mouthed and motionless. Jean Valjean continued, I do not think that I shall escape from this place. 
but if by chance I do, I live under the name of Fauchevelant in the Rue de l'Homme Arme, number seven. Javert snarled like a tiger, which made him half open one corner of his mouth, and he muttered between his teeth, Have a care. Go, said Jean Valjean. Javert began again. Thou saidst Fauchevelant, Rue de l'Homme Arme. Number seven. Javert repeated in a low voice, Number seven. He buttoned up his coat once more, resumed the military stiffness between his shoulders, made a half turn, folded his arms, and supporting his chin on one of his hands, he set out in the direction of the Halles. Jean Valjean followed him with his eyes. A few minutes later, Javert turned round and shouted to Jean Valjean, You annoy me! Kill me, rather! Javert himself did not notice that he no longer addressed Jean Valjean as thou. Be off with you, said Jean Valjean. Javert retreated slowly. A moment later he turned the corner of the Rue des Pressures. When Javert had disappeared, Jean Valjean fired his pistol in the air. Then he returned to the barricade and said, It is done. In the meanwhile, this is what had taken place. Marius, more intent on the outside than on the interior, had not up to that time taken a good look at the pinion spy in the dark background of the tap-room. When he beheld him in broad daylight striding over the barricade in order to proceed to his death, he recognized him. Something suddenly recurred to his mind. He recalled the inspector of the Rue de Pontois, the two pistols which the latter had handed to him and which he, Marius, had used in this very barricade, and not only did he recall his face, but his name as well. This recollection was misty and troubled, however, like all his ideas. It was not an affirmation that he made, but a question which he put to himself. Is not that the inspector of police who told me that his name was Javert? Perhaps there was still time to intervene in behalf of that man, but in the first place he must know whether this was Javert. Marius called Enjolras, who had just stationed himself at the other extremity of the barricade. Enjolras! What? What is the name of yonder man? What man? The police agent. Do you know his name? Of course, he told us. What is it? Javert. Marius sprang to his feet. At that moment they heard the report of the pistol. Jean Valjean reappeared and cried, It is done. A gloomy chill traversed Marius's heart. End of Book One, Chapters Seventeen to Nineteen.